Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. Morning. How you guys doing? Feels kind of sterile right now. Are you guys okay? <laughs> um, it's kind of a, um, it's not a very juicy text today. It's not like a steak. It's more like a kale sort of message, kind of like asparagus, you know. But uh, man can't live on steak alone, right? You got to have your, your greens. And so it's going to be an asparagus sort of message today. Um, Romans chapter 13, it's about submitting to the government. So that's pretty, that's a veggie delight right there, right? Uh, Romans chapter 13, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. Um, it's pretty fitting, too, because taxes are due in a couple of weeks. And I'm always reminded of that when I see the, uh, the, uh, um, the Statue of Liberty dressed on the road, you know, just kind of waving their big signs, acting out of their minds. Um, I don't know how that works. It must work. Their marketing must work because they keep doing it every year. But uh, anyways, obviously, um, how we relate to the government is a major part of our lives, right? That affects almost every area of our lives, like the private, the public transportation, our properties or the places we rent, every paycheck. Uncle Sam gets some of that too. Um, It's even involved in life and death issues, such as assisted suicide. Or as we know, a big topic in our own day that's really heated is the issue of abortion, that government is directly involved in. In fact, we're in this public school this morning because the government has allowed us to be here in a way that is illegal in many parts of the world. And so all that to say that the relation between the church and the state is a major practicality when it comes to Christianity, specifically in the matter of witness. And so what Paul is doing today is he's calling us to be outstanding witnesses in the culture that we find ourselves within. And a major part of that will be for Christians how we relate to the government, how we honor those who are in authority, how we submit to the laws of the land. Because what's really at stake in Romans chapter 13 is the hindrance to the gospel message itself to the world around us. And so Paul writes to us to tell us as Christians how to relate to the government. And so we'll pick it up in verse 1 and read through verse 7 and pray. It says this, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who oppose will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is, it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only to the wrath, but also for the conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay your taxes for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. And then verse 7, render to all to what is due to them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Lord, as we open your word, we pray that you would 
open our hearts to what this means for us today. Um, we're thankful that we don't just follow just a religion that's a list of rules, but the Spirit of God wants to speak to us today. We don't want to leave it legalist or anything like that. We just we want to hear from you in a way that matters, that affects the way that we live so that other people can see Jesus Christ through our lives. That's what really matters. And so I just pray that I would decrease now, God, and you would just come through and teach us Romans 13. In Jesus' name, amen. And that text that I just read is a little radical when we understand the backdrop of some of the things that went down in first century Rome that Paul was calling this church to submit to. And just to highlight some of the things that we see in the first century Rome regarding the Roman authority, uh, King Herod, we learn from the Gospels, was able to slaughter an entire village of male infants without any repercussion. Uh, Slavery flourished in the Roman Empire, where millions of people were often treated like property rather than people. Uh, This letter itself that we're holding in our hands was written during the time of Claudius or Nero, who were both completely ungodly men. And so you have Christians living under megalomaniacs who set themselves up to be basically worshipped as God. And beyond that, a more sensitive subject, the tax system was beyond corrupt, which is why the calling of Matthew was a little scandalous. In fact, the tax system was so messed up that the religious leaders tried to use it to put Jesus in a catch-22, where they came to Jesus and asked him if it was even lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, which was actually a reasonable question because of all of the extortion that took place. And if there's like any story I could have been a fly on the wall, it would have been this little episode. Because Jesus does not go into this long theological slash political debate with these guys, but he tells these knuckleheads what? Hand me a coin. And then he asks them a simple question. He says, whose image and description is on the coin? To which they obviously answer Caesar. And Jesus says, bingo, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Like, if there was ever a mic drop moment in the Gospels, this would have been the one. And really, Jesus sums up this entire message today with an object lesson and a couple of sentences. Give to Uncle Sam what belongs to Uncle Sam and give to God what belongs to God. And we can go on and on regarding the shortcomings within the Roman government, but the point is this. Paul was not naive when he wrote this section of Romans. He wasn't ignorant of the fact that the Roman government was far from perfect or even ideal because he too would experience injustice by the hands of the civil authority of Rome. And so with that sort of backdrop in mind, Paul is is really trying to protect against two errors that would have been easy for the first century Christians to fall into, both of which diminish their witness of the gospel message because the question for these guys was, how do we live in light of our future heavenly citizenship as current citizens of Rome? How do we operate in this temporary citizenship under a difficult government that was often hostile, oppressive, and very unfair? And so Paul, he writes the first half of Romans 13 to address this very issue to protect against two potential pitfalls. The first one was that starting a revolution against Rome would be wrong, Or number two, forming Christian communities away from the government were both equal dangers that diminish 
the message of the gospel in the world. And so the Christians in Rome were not to attempt to overthrow the government because they were bummed at all the policies, and nor were they to move in the hills and make candles and soap until Jesus returns because they felt mistreated, right? They weren't supposed to climb into a tree and make jam. They were supposed to actually be subjected to the government. And so instead of allowing for those two extremes, Paul offers a third alternative and says, be in subjection to the governing authorities. And it's almost like this military-type command to fall in line. And not only that, you'll notice there in verse 2, he takes it a step further and says, anyone who rebels against this authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And so he makes this direct connection between civil disobedience as though it was rebellion against God himself. And with the Roman background in view, this should raise some, some natural questions, right? When, you, when we read the text, it should like churn up deeper questions because when we look at the, the dark history of humanity, we know that, that sometimes government does not fulfill their God-given role. And in fact, the government can be the very avenue of committing evil on a large scale. That clearly happened in first century Rome. And so what I want to do with this text today is just look at it from two different angles, the ideal and the not-so-ideal, the principle and the failure of the principle, because the Bible is not calling for blind obedience to the government, but nevertheless, it is a real call to submission despite injustice within the government. So we'll look at it from two different angles. told you guys this was a total kale message. But concerning the ideal picture, because there's two things here. When I read this, I'm like, wow, that's crazy, Paul. Like, how do we do that? But the ideal picture, what Paul is getting at on the surface, is that God has ordained the concept of civil authority as a means of common grace to restrain evil. And it's really just that simple. Paul is not writing to baptize a certain form of government or to endorse a certain leader, but rather the concept of government. And the concept's really clear, verses 3 through 5, that civil authority, what? Exists to restrain evil. That government is a common good by God's grace that keeps some degree of order and justice in society, that without which there would be complete chaos. It would be like a perpetual riot where like nobody comes to save the day. And if you step back from the text and think about this, the fact that we even need civil authority in the first place, is a reminder that something is very wrong with the human condition, right? That we have to pay huge sums of our own income to make entire departments just to keep us safe from one another. That's really what Roman 13 is all about. It's, it's, a, it's a picture of the fallenness of our world and God stepping in and instituting a common grace to restrain our own self-destruction. And you'll notice in your Bible, the language that Paul uses makes this very explicit because the word that Paul uses is so interesting regarding these civil authorities is the same sort of word that Paul uses elsewhere to describe the role of a pastor or a deacon. And so you'll see there in verse 4, Paul calls them the ministers of God two times. In verse 6, he calls them servants of God. That Paul is, is saying that these are literally authorities in government that are appointed by God. That they're ministers of God. And so when we kind of think about that for a second we should come to the natural conclusion, according to Romans chapter 13, that our president, 
and every president before him and after him are ministers appointed by God. Which is what Paul says there explicitly in verse 1. For all authority comes from God, and those in authority have been placed there by God. And this is why in some nations that the presidential role is referred to as the prime minister. Literally the, the first servant of, of God. So it's like a fun fact. I don't know if you guys needed that or not, but I always wonder, like, why is he a prime minister? Because he's the first servant of God. And so when we begin to understand this, that there are ministers appointed by God, then, then passages like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 make a whole lot more sense where Paul says, pray for your leaders. And you'll notice that Paul doesn't say, pray for the authority that you elected or the guy or gal you like, but rather, he says, pray for those who are in authority, no matter who they are. And that was a little hard for me to kind of digest this week because I'm so fast to criticize and be bummed. But Paul's saying, pray for your leaders so that we can live quiet, godly lives for the purpose of propagating the gospel. And on a really practical level, this idea of government as a common grace for God is something we all understand, right? I mean, we, all, we have vehicles in the parking lot. If someone was stealing your vehicle right now, there would be an avenue for justice to be served. But Uncle Gino's out there, so that's, that's not going to happen, right? He will tear somebody up. That guy's crazy. If a heinous crime was committed, I'm really happy that there would be an investigation for justice to be served. Um, the police who dish out speeding tickets to keep the roadways safe is a reminder of God's common grace against our little rebellious hearts that always want to go 10 over the limit. And so God and his grace has designed this authority into the fabric of society as a means to restrain evil. And so, I think if we're really getting the concept behind Romans 13 of civil authority being God's common grace, then the next time that you get a speeding ticket, you should actually thank the officer for being an awesome minister of God as a direct representative of King Jesus, right? Who restrains your wicked driving. Like, that's the point. Like, thank you for giving me a ticket. Let me tell you what I did 10 minutes ago. Thank you. But that's obviously the ideal, right? We don't live in an ideal world. This is all surface level regarding the, the text in Romans 13. And so the obvious question that comes to my mind when I studied this verse this week, when I look at verses 1 and 2, does this mean that God is responsible for the behavior of some of the worst authorities in human history? If God has ordained authorities, is he responsible for their actions? Some of which are really modern, such as Hitler and Stalin and Saddam, who are directly responsible for horrific portions of history. Because when we approach Romans 13, we have to, to realize that these verses have been binding on all Christians under every form of government in every generation, to include our brothers and sisters today in North Korea and China, among other parts of the world, that either regulate or straight up outlaw the practice of Christianity, among other very serious basic human right issues. And so I think the question is a very serious question. Is God responsible for the behavior of evil authorities throughout the world? Because this has direct implications of how we understand this text. To what point do we submit to evil authority? And I think Scripture really helps us answer this question very clearly because the best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible. 
And it's clear that Paul is not offering an exhaustive teaching on the church and the state in these few verses. And so to answer the question simply, God is not responsible for the, the behavior of ordained authorities, but nevertheless, their authority is derived from God. God is, is not responsible for the behavior of ordained authorities, but nevertheless, their authority is derived from God. And I was thinking, like, how in the world do I, do I bring this to life for you guys? And I think one of the clearest pictures of all the Bible that shows this Romans 13 picture is the episode between Pilate and Jesus, where the Jewish leaders wanted to get rid of Jesus because he was claiming to be God. But the problem was they couldn't get rid of Jesus because they couldn't do capital punishment under their own occupation. And so what did they do? They brought him to this guy named Pilate, who was the Roman governor of Judea. And so Pilate interrogates Jesus, which was a big-time deal in the Roman Empire because they're trying to get Jesus on insurrection. And so if Jesus is challenging the authority of Caesar, we have a problem. So Pilate interrogates him. And I love this section of of, uh, John 18 and 19 because Pilate asked Jesus if, in fact, he was claiming to be a king, to which Jesus responds that this was the very reason for why he was born and that his kingdom was not of this world. And then Jesus goes on to make his identity even more emphatic later in their conversation, because when you read John 18 and 19, you get a real sense that Pilate was desperate to get out of the situation because he knew that Jesus was innocent. And this whole trial was super shady. But nevertheless, the crowds pressured Pilate with political threats. And so Pilate just slowly caved to their demands. And the gospel writer goes on to tell us that Pilate asked Jesus one last question. And we want to know how Jesus responds because it directly sheds light on our text today. And so Pilate kind of comes to the end of himself and says in John 19.10, he says this, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And then notice how Jesus responds. This could be chicken skin every time. Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this very reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And those are the, the last words that, that Jesus spoke to Pilate. And it really captures the hanging question of Romans 13. That yes, you have authority in this moment that was actually God-ordained, but you will be responsible for your actions. Jesus is saying that you have no authority over me unless it was given to you from above. However, you And the crew that delivered me over to this shady trial will be directly responsible for your sin. And so I think it's it's real clear that, that the Roman authority was ordained by God, but nevertheless, Pilate was directly responsible for his own behavior. And so God is is clearly not responsible, but nevertheless, their authority is derived from above. And so again, we must remind ourselves that Paul was not naive when he wrote Romans 13 because this is the same government that crucified Jesus. And nevertheless, he calls the Roman Christians to be in subjection to the Roman authority, which raises the question, how far should we submit to an evil authority? And that is a really, really hard question to answer. But what we must realize in context of Romans is that this is really a reflection Back to Romans 12.1, 
where Paul urges his readers to be a living sacrifice as a means of true spiritual worship. He's putting flesh on a theological truth that, yes, civil authority can be completely backwards, but he did not give the Roman Christians a license to rebel against Rome. And if you'll know from church history, 10 years later, after this letter was written, things got really bad because basically Nero burned Rome to the ground, blames it on the Christians, and then radically persecutes them in some pretty horrific ways. And I don't know about you, but that seems really uncomfortable in my inner American spirit, right? That's charged up on my rights and my privileges. I cringe at the thought of suffering under the hands of an unjust authority. And yet, much of Christian history throughout the world has had to live under these exact circumstances. But, in some crazy way, it's under these exact circumstances that Christianity has thrived. Like If you just study church history throughout the history of the church, when Christianity is pressed to the margins, it spreads like wildfire, especially in the first century Rome. Because you have no Christianity, they get persecuted. Bam, it's in the whole world. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that that Christianity in America today is in decline and literally in ruins in most of Europe, but in portions of Africa, China, and even Iran, Christianity is growing like wildfire despite the government trying to stamp these guys out. And so there's, there's just something to be said in the economy of God about suffering for righteousness' sake. There's just something to be said about it. When we as Christians who walk by faith commit ourselves to God, rather than taking things in our own hand, God delights in that sort of faith. And the funny thing is, um, in our home groups, we've been studying this exact same thing in 1 Peter. And I want to read you a section in 1 Peter where he says this, For what credit is there if you sin and are punished and you endure it? But... When you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. Another translation says this is a gracious thing in God's sight. And not only that, in the next three verses, he would go on to say this. This is one of those hard pills to swallow. Verse 21, for you were called to this because Christ also suffered, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was suffering, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And all these verses are in the exact same context of submitting to authority. That that Peter goes so so far to say that, that you were called to this very thing. That as Christ has suffered, you should suffer, even to the point of suffering under the hands of unjust authority. And the reality is, if you read through your New Testament, you can't escape this sort of teaching. It's all across the New Testament. It's absolutely saturated. Jesus himself would say in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And beyond that, he would actually go on to say, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great when, what? You suffer for righteousness. That's really uncomfortable for me. I don't know about you guys. Um, kill, it's, it's a kill sermon. I don't know what to say. And so the, the question becomes, why? Like, why is this 
a gracious thing in God's Why is it important for us as Christians to submit despite injustice if necessary? And the reality is, when we think about this objectively, with the, the example of Pilate and Jesus in the background, when we, as Christians, suffer unjustly and commit ourselves to God, we are actually putting the very heart of the gospel on display. We are putting the very example of Jesus on display. When we suffer while doing what is right and do not take things into our own hands, we are putting the life of Jesus on display. Why? Because this is exactly what Jesus has done for us, hasn't he? He suffered sin on the cross that even though Jesus was the most just person who ever lived, but nevertheless, he subjected himself to the cross even though he had every right to remove himself from the situation. And not only did he have every right, but he had the authority, right? As he told Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it were given to you from above. And so Jesus, instead of appealing to his rights and his authority as God in the flesh, as Peter notes, he what? He continually entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Which is another way of saying he did not take things into his own hands, but he trusted that God would work out the details. And this is the example, as Peter says, that Jesus has left us as Christians in this room to follow. And according to Romans 13, one of the practical outworkings of this reality is how we submit to the government. Because it's so easy to take things into our own hands, but in the process, we often can create a bad witness and diminish the gospel message itself. It's really kind of like that. And when our brothers and sisters in hostile nations return prayer and blessings for revile and hatred and pay respect and honor to unfit rulers, they are putting the very life of Jesus on display as little Christ. Because what they know is that God will be the ultimate authority in the end, right? He will be the ultimate equalizer. And so what they do is they simply trust themselves to that reality in an act of faith. And so really, as I step back from the text, the overarching point of Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2 is that God is the ultimate authority. The context of this passage is that we submit unto the government in reverence to God's authority because we fear God, not man, not government. And so the authority of the government is not some limitless deal that the Christian must blindly follow, but it's all in the context of God's authority. And so there will obviously be caveats to our degree of submission to civil authority. God is supreme, not the government. And so to put it simply, when the government commands what God forbids, or forbids what God commands, then we as Christians must simply part ways and let the consequences fall as they may, because our ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus. And so Martin Luther King Jr. is an awesome example of this, as far as the uh, God-ordained civil disobedience. I just like the way that sounds. I want to be a part of that, you know. Um, But he preached this amazing sermon in 1956 called Paul's Letters to the American Christians, where he kind of creates this parody where he opens a letter from Paul, the ancient Paul, the Greek-speaking Paul, 
to his church that he was pastoring. And it's kind of funny. I guess Martin Luther had a little bit of uh, humor, um, but he talks about in the beginning of the sermon how he's worked so hard to translate the Greek into the English and all of these things. And he, he's acting like he's opening and reading to the guys. But um, you can actually go online and listen to the sermon. I thought it was comical. But he really explains this idea that I'm trying to talk about concerning civil disobedience. And I want to read a quote from the sermon. He says this under the character of Paul. He says, American Christians, I must say to you, as I said to the Roman Christian years ago, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Or as I said to the Philippian Christians, you are a colony of heaven. This means although you live in the colony of time, your ultimate allegiance is to the empire of eternity. You have a dual citizenship. You live both in time and eternity, both heaven and earth. Therefore, your ultimate allegiance is not to the government, not to the state, not to the nation, not to any man-made institution. The Christian owes his ultimate allegiance to God, and if any earthly institution conflicts with God's will, it is your Christian duty to take a stand against it. You must never allow the transitory demands of man-made institutions to take precedence over the eternal demands of an almighty God. Man, that guy was anointed, right? Like, I just felt anointed because I read that. Like, that, I can never explain it better than Mr. Anointed King Jr. And so when the government forbids what God commands or forbids what God has told us to do clearly in his word, then we must part ways. Because why? Our ultimate authority is with the almighty God. And we see examples of this all across the Bible where God and the government where God's people and the government parted ways because there was this incompatibility. We see this all the way back to Exodus with the midwives, where the Pharaoh said, hey, I need you guys to throw all the infants into the river. And the midwives are like, uh, no, we fear God more than man, right? Or we see this with, uh, with Daniel, when they made an edict to basically bow down and worship this statue. Uh, and Daniel's like, can't do that. Sorry, I actually, actually worship Yahweh. Kind of a, a conflict there. Uh, you can catch me later. Or uh, the disciples, right? When the, uh, the disciples were preaching Jesus and the Sanhedrin came to them, and, we told you guys to stop preaching in this name. Like, you're making us look really bad. And they said, it's actually better for us to obey God rather than man. So flog us if you want, but we're going to keep doing what God commanded. And so it's clear that the government is not some limitless deal that requires the Christian to submit no matter the circumstance. But instead, Romans 13 is what? A matter of ultimate authority that derives from God and therefore trumps all earthly authority when there is a conflict between the two. Did you guys get that? Was that clear? I, all right. I know Kale can be so bad. And, and beyond that, uh, another caveat here, beyond that, when the government is, is clearly doing evil, the Christian should not sit back and be passive or turned a blind eye to injustice, because God calls us to love justice, to be a voice for the oppressed, to be a voice for the voiceless. But the key is, there's a right and wrong way to do that. And again, a, a great example of this was King Jr., who was not willing to turn a blind eye towards blatant injustice. But what people, people often forget concerning King Jr. is that he was actually a pastor, he was first a pastor and not a politician. Not that being a politician is a bad thing, but his convictions for civil rights flowed directly 
from his understanding of who God was, and therefore it prompted him to get involved. And to show you this, I want to read a portion of a sermon that he preached in 1967. This was actually a year before he was assassinated. This is a little bit shorter, and it should be on the screen. He says this, Before I was a civil rights leader, I was a preacher of the gospel. This was my first calling, and it still remains my greatest commitment. Actually, all that I do in civil rights, I do because I consider it a part of my ministry. I have no other ambitions in life but to achieve excellence in the Christian ministry. I don't plan to run for any political office. I don't plan to do anything but remain a preacher. You see, his ambitions were not caught up in political debates or even civil rights as an end, but he saw that the image of God was being trampled on because somebody else had a different skin color. And so he wasn't willing to to turn away from injustice, but instead, what did he do? He got directly involved, and his involvement, this is key, was directly informed by the gospel. And like King Jr., us in this room, as part of a representative democracy, we have a sway in this arena that most places in the world do not have to make a direct impact regarding injustices that we see in our own nation. But the, the spirit of how we do that has to always foremost be informed by the gospel. It has to be motivated by love. And so really all that to say, clearly God does not call us as Christians to turn away from clear injustice. That is not the point of Romans 13. This is not some blind call to obedience to government. And so to to put it all together in three simple points, you guys okay? Because we're almost done. You guys are wilting a little bit. I know Tripp says that when I'm up here, like, oh, like little flowers wilting. It's kind of funny, actually. Um, I'm not, I'm like, I'm not wilting, Tripp. I'm focused in, dude. Like, what's your problem? But I can see it now. Some of you guys are wilting. That's okay. God's got grace for that. And so when we put this all together in three simple points, we submit to the government in reverence to God's authority. We submit to the government in reverence to God's authority, number one. Number two, we part ways when the government commands or forbids things that are contrary to God's word. And number three, we actively seek justice that is motivated by gospel love, sometimes despite what the government commands. And really, how the Christian relates to the state boils down to these three truths. And that's not to say it's always easy to know what we should do. And obviously, this takes incredible wisdom and direction from the Spirit to walk in properly. And so what is the takeaway for today? What is the the so what of the text and our context? And like I said already, this text is a matter of ultimate authority. God is large and in charge, right? And our subjection to the government, or even God-ordained civil disobedience, is a reflection of that truth. Because the reality is we know the government just doesn't always get it right. That's actually an understatement, right? And so it's really easy to get frustrated and even cynical, but when we start to enter that space, and if it kind of becomes the flavor of our speech, it may reveal that we're putting too much stock in our earthly citizenship and undermining God's own authority in our lives. He's saying, don't be dominated by your earthly citizenship, but submit to it in a way that glorifies God. Because the real purpose of the text is Paul and Peter are calling us as Christians in this room to go out there and be outstanding citizens, despite the circumstance, so that 
others may see the gospel through our lives. And all of this is under the banner of honoring God's authority. And our perfect example is Jesus. His perfect example is Christ. And being a Christian is like being like Christ. Like, hence the name, right? That even though he was the king of kings, he laid down his authority for what? For the sake of our salvation. And I, I love that line from that new song that we sang last week. The head that was once crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. I love that. That's the king that we serve. And so in light of all that, let's honor Jesus' authority by allowing him be the king in the details of our lives because he's worthy of all of our submission and obedience. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for this morning and these theological truths that you have opened. Um, I pray, God, that you would teach us how to walk in this this week, that if you brought things to our heart, I know you've brought things to my own mind and heart in ways I can do better in this area. And so, God, we pray as we leave this place, you would show us how to render the things that belong to you and the things that belong to the state. We want to be faithful stewards of what you've given us. And so, God, as we enter into a a time of response, we pray that you would speak to us, show us how we can be better witnesses in the community because there's so much on the line, God. So we thank you, first of all, that you died for our sins on the cross, but now you've sent us out to be a part of something much bigger than ourselves. And we ask, God, that we would just get a greater revelation of that this week and that the government and the way that we live towards the government actually matters. We thank you that your word is that practical. And so, God, we just pray that you would teach us. We love you, and we want to glorify you for all that you're worth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.